This morning's scripture passage comes from Mark 5, verses 21 to 34. It can be found on page 891 of the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors, and she had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touching his clothing, for she said, If I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased. And she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid. Only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him, and he entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let's pray to the Lord, and then we will jump in here. Pray with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Father, we are here this morning to receive your pure, powerful, effective, 
glorious, transforming word. We're here to hear from you by your spirit through this book. And so I pray that our hearts would be supple, soft, humble before you in the moments ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a small portion of Vanitha Rendell Reisner's story. She's an author. She's a teacher in uh, the U.S. It's told in her words and mine, but it's told from her perspective. I don't think I can make it through this pain. I just don't see how. It seems unbearable, suffocating, too much for one person to bear. And what's hardest is that it is relentless. It started when I was a child with bullies. I became an adult and thought my life would change with Prince Charming. But then my infant son died because of a doctor's mistake. Shortly after, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, a chronic pain that could leave me a quadriplegic. And then my husband left me with two adolescent daughters because he just couldn't handle our situation anymore. What makes this story so heartbreaking isn't just the specific details of this woman's life, but the mounting pain, the growing difficulty. But what makes this story so glorious is how Vanitha somehow found the spiritual resources to keep going, to keep trusting. Listen to her own words, quote, At one point, I stopped reading the Bible because I felt God couldn't be trusted. But when I finally turned back to him, I found comfort in the Psalms of laments. They gave me words when I had none. As I said them back to God, I was surprised by their power to change me. I listened to God, lamented to God, prayed my way through the Bible until my Bible reading time became more life-giving conversation than boring homework exercises. As I think about Vanitha, my immediate question, perhaps yours, is how? And not just that question of how did she endure, but rather how did she endure as things got worse and not better? It's the accumulation of the gut punches that really are stunning here. It's not just figuring out how to trust the Lord. It's figuring out how to keep trusting the Lord. What about you and me, brothers and sisters? Will we trust Jesus even when things get worse? Will worsening circumstances cause us to lean more into Jesus or less? You'll notice in the story that Mike read for us, we see two characters. We see a number of characters, but two characters in particular, the bleeding woman, the grieving father, whose life circumstances worsened through the story. So how's Jesus going to respond and intervene? How are these characters going to respond as well? That's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the main point in a sentence. Even when things get worse, trust King Jesus because he alone has the fierce power and delicate touch to heal and save you. Even when things get worse, sometimes things get worse. And when they do, you can trust King Jesus 
because he alone has the power and the touch to heal and save you. We're going to tackle this story by looking at the, the strength of Jesus and the tenderness of Jesus with a few characters. Here's the first, Jesus strong and tender with a bleeding woman, looking at verses 21 through 34. Now, in the past few weeks, we've seen a series of power, power encounters with Jesus, his power over the demons, his power over the storms, and here we see his power in the lives of an unclean woman and a little girl. Notice now he's, he's back on the West Bank. He's back with the Jews. He's crossed back over the Sea of Galilee, and, and a crowd has gathered around him. The Pharisees are probably lurking somewhere. There's a synagogue likely in town, and from that synagogue, we notice a leader comes out to talk to Jesus, this guy named Jairus. Now, what did synagogue rulers do? Well, they presided over the affairs of the synagogue. They organized and taught at the weekly services. Most of them were Pharisees. So Jairus was likely a Pharisee. And notice in verse 22, Jairus is laying prostrate at Jesus' feet. He's probably heard that Jesus has performed all kinds of miracles. Maybe he's even seen some of those miracles. And Jairus in his desperate situation, which of course is his little girl dying, lays flat before Jesus because only Jesus can help. And so off they go, the crowd follows them, and on the way they get waylaid by a woman with a bleed. Now before we get into the details of this woman's story, which we will in just a few moments, one thing I want you to notice as we look at the chapters 4 and 5, as so we kind of take a step back and, and gather ourselves and look at the context here, we see Jesus dealing with all different kinds of people, a huge variety of people. We see both insiders as well as outsiders. So you see disciples and you see these unclean Gentiles and synagogue rulers and women with bleeds. Some are without privilege, like this bleeding woman. But notice he also helps those with privilege, like the synagogue ruler. And he talks to them in different ways, right? He, he rebukes the disciples in the boat. He commands the demons. He moves quickly to help Jairus. And he pauses to converse with this woman. Friends, I want you to notice as we're kind of looking at, at the context here, Jesus can save anyone. And Jesus can save anyone in any situation. But he seems to specialize in lost causes like this woman. Look with me at the situation of this woman. Verses 25 and 26. Now a woman suffering from a bleed for 12 years had endured, excuse me, now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. I want you to notice at the end of this, this interesting uh, description that not only did she have this bleed, but things got worse for her. They did not get better for her. She probably had some kind of uterine hemorrhage, uh, 12 straight years of bleeding. Uh, this is an incredibly awful situation. And I'm sure everybody else around her thought, man, she's a lost cause. Imagine you have terrible headaches for some time and you've tried everything. You've tried all of the over-the-counter medicines. And one doctor puts you on some experimental meds and it doesn't get better for you. It actually gets worse. You have some side effects. You go to another doctor across the country, he puts you under the knife and things don't get better. That doesn't help you. And so you've flown to multiple hospitals, you've visited countless doctors all over the country, and you still have these headaches. 
And at the end, you're not only worse off because you've got all these other side effects, but you've like spent all of your money. Now, I know for some of you, this story hits too close to home. You've endured many doctors. Things didn't get better. You lost a lot of money, much like this woman. No one was able to help her. Maybe for a time she had income, she had stability. She may have even had a husband who's long gone at this stage. And what colors this even more are the laws of Leviticus, because nobody could be around this woman. To touch her or to be touched by her would make them unclean because she had this issue of blood. Now, let's, let's think about the Levitical law a little bit, the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law itself isn't bad. It's not there to punish people. It's there to help people and point people to the character and heart of God. And, and so we're not going to turn to Leviticus chapter 17, but you can jot it down. It's helpful here. It teaches that in blood there is life. And so when people lose blood, it was the law's way of teaching about the sanctity of life. Whether you lose blood from a period or you're having a baby or there's a constant bleed, losing blood was a symbol of the loss of life. Blood loss was a symbol of death. Death was the opposite of everything clean. And so, friends, this woman was unclean, and therefore her life was absolutely miserable. She couldn't go to weekly synagogue services. She had to cry out unclean every time she was in public. No one had likely touched her for 12 years. I mean, think about that for a moment. Nobody had offered her a hug for 12 years. In our culture, we've been so conditioned by inappropriate touch that we're in danger of forgetting the life-giving impact of appropriate touch, right? We as human beings, we, we need touch, an arm around a shoulder, a, a gentle touch on an arm, a warm hug. And those of us who may not have an immediate family or we're coming from broken families or we're unmarried, we're single, listen, friends, we, the spiritual family of God, must practice appropriate touch and include them in it. Because we're a spiritual family, right? Right? And the Bible tells us to look at each other as brothers and sisters. Well, next week you're going to be with your family, with your brothers and sisters perhaps. When you greet them, what do you do? Probably give them a hug or kiss them on the cheek, right? We are a spiritual family. For this woman, this was total isolation. That's what it meant. Must have been absolutely unbearable for her. But according to verse 27, look at verse 27. She had heard about Jesus. She had been drained of her finances. She had been drained of physical energy. But her hope was in Jesus. In fact, he was her last hope. And so what does she do? She kind of wiggles her way through the crowd and, and from behind touches his garment. And this touch should have made Jesus unclean. This was a risky move for this woman. And she's wiggling through the crowd. No doubt she's touching other people. Maybe she's got a, a hood over her. And so there's a lot of risk here. But Jesus was different. He is greater than any purity laws. In fact, he wrote them. She had some understanding of this. She believed that touching him would not make him unclean, but would make her well. She believed that he would do what no one else could do for her, and she was right. But Jesus, Jesus knows that she needs more than just healing. 
She wanted to touch his clothes from behind and make kind of this quick getaway, probably because of the shame. It was too unbearable. She's already taking lots of risks, just being there, talking to Jesus, touching Jesus, all of this, going amongst the crowd. So what does Jesus do? Well, notice he asked the crowd this question, who touched my clothes? Not because Jesus doesn't know. I mean, he's the son of God. He's omniscient. He knows He's trying to draw this woman out. And notice the the disciples are annoyed in verse 31. They don't understand. Bro, look around. You're more popular than Justin Bieber in Canada. Of course, people are going to lean in and touch you, right? So they kind of miss the point. They've been missing the point for a few chapters. Why did Jesus stop? Why did he stop for this woman? Remember, Jairus is standing right there. Why did Jesus raise Jairus's blood pressure and, and kind, of, kind of, you know, embarrass this woman in public? Well, here's why, friends. He's teaching this woman a lesson, and I think it's the same lesson Jairus needs to learn, too. Jesus was not content with her healed body. He wants to make her faith strong. She believed her touch had healed her. Look at verse 28. She's like, if I just go and touch him, I'm going to be healed. If Jesus hadn't talked with her, she may have forever seen Jesus superstitiously as a healer rather than intelligently as a savior. Jesus is not some like holy relic. You touch and like power just surges out. So Jesus thoughtfully says, I want you to look at verse 34. Look at these words. They're really astounding. He thoughtfully says, your faith has saved you. See that? Your faith has saved you. There's nothing about touch. There's nothing about even healing just yet in that phrase. It wasn't her touch. It was her faith. Sure, that's why she was healed. She had faith. But Jesus says also that's why she was saved. You see that? The spiritual need of this woman is far greater than her physical healing. She needed forgiveness more than she needed healing. Jesus granted her both. You see, the point of this healing isn't, the point of the story, excuse me, isn't healing. The point of this story is ultimately salvation. And faith is the conduit to it. And yes, along the way, she received healing. It's interesting, Jesus kind of outs her in public, right? This conversation is happening in public. He knows exactly what everyone needs as he's encountering them, and he's intentionally healing them and interacting with them in such a way that's going to help them. This woman was a total outsider living in the shadows of society. She's trying to hide. She's trying to kind of get away. But notice Jesus doesn't allow it. He draws her out. And I want you to notice how he addresses her. That first word, he says, daughter. What a wonderfully tender moment. He calls her daughter. How much that must have meant to her. This woman who's in in isolation probably doesn't talk to too many people, doesn't receive any sort of physical touch. Jesus shows up and says, daughter. Jesus is strong, but he's also tender. Jesus knows she needs more than just healing. She needs salvation. She needs family. She's healed both physically, but she's also healed spiritually. Friends, salvation is more than just you are not guilty. Now go free. It also says you are family. Don't run away. You can stay. That's what we see here. 
Ever since the first sin with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, people have tried to hide from God in their shame. We don't like exposure. We camouflage. We run away. But notice here, and as you think back to the Garden of Eden, God graciously draws close. He doesn't let us hide. He draws us out, not to expose us needlessly, but to clothe us with his grace, to clothe us with his righteousness, and to call us his own. Son, you are forgiven. Enter into my kingdom. Be a part of my family. Jesus is strong, strong to heal this woman, but he is tender to take time with her in this way to clarify and strengthen her faith. This is the great surprise of Jesus as we're encountering him through the gospel of Mark. He is the transcendent one. He is holy. He is divine. He is righteous. He is all powerful, but he is also the imminent one. And you'll notice in this story, he isn't in a hurry. No one can, can rush Jesus. He takes time with you and me and this woman. He brings his glorious might and unparalleled power to bear on the smallest of peoples in the smallest details of our lives. This is Jesus. He is strong. He is tender. And so we see it here with this woman. We also see it as we consider the grieving father. So let's turn our attention now to Jesus being strong and tender with this grieving father. So let's not forget about the guy who's standing right there, Jairus. He's been standing there for this whole time. And I don't know about you, if it was me, I would be slightly annoyed, right? Uh, he's a synagogue ruler. He's used to getting his way. He has authority in this town. He's probably deeply unsettled by the situation. And of course, in this case, things are dire. I mean, his, his daughter is on death's door. If he were even a little impatient, at least internally, I mean, it would, it would kind of be understandable. We don't like interruptions, do we? We don't want anyone to mess with our agendas or try to break in on our schedules. We get annoyed. We get impatient. But friends, ultimately, if you're connected to God, if God is with you, it doesn't matter how many times you're being interrupted, how dire the situation might be. If he is with you, if he is calm and composed and working and still before you, then we can be too. So I think there's a lesson here for us. But I think there's a, a, an overriding lesson that I want to point out, a lesson for Jairus, and I think we're going to have some takeaways as well. I want you to notice how this story unfolds, the, the drama between verses 34 and 35. So let me read those verses for you. Verse 34 and then verse 35. Daughter, Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, He's in the middle of that sentence. What happens? Well, some people from the synagogue leader's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? From daughter, your faith has saved you, be healed, to but actually your daughter is dead. You know, it's not just the woman who has endured worsening circumstances. This man's painful situation just got worse. Think about the flood of thoughts that must have entered his mind. You know, why couldn't Jesus have just ignored this woman and gotten home with me? I mean, she's had this bleed for 12 years. She could have endured for another like 60 minutes. And now my girl is gone. She's dead. He must have been feeling the finality of her death in this moment, right? 
But friends, Jesus is strong and Jesus is tender. His affection comes through as he turns to Jairus in this moment when Jairus' whole life is kind of falling apart and he says five very simple but important words. Don't be afraid, only believe. Here's where I think we find the kind of the strongest gravitational force of our passage, the central truth that kind of pulls at us. Don't be afraid, only trust Jesus. And then there's these well-meaning people with a report. They come to Jairus and they say, hey, why bother the teacher anymore? Well, it's because he's not just a teacher, right? They still don't understand. They don't get it. They don't get who he is. Maybe Jairus is starting to understand. Could Jesus be teaching Jairus something as he waited for Jesus to engage with this woman? After all, wasn't Jairus a witness to an act of Jesus' incredible healing just a few minutes ago, right? Wasn't Jairus a witness to Jesus' teaching about faith just a few minutes ago? And so in those few minutes of delay, could Jesus be intentionally building up Jairus' faith and preparing Jairus for what is to come? Jairus' situation has greatly declined, and yet Jesus commands him to have the same kind of faith that the woman has expressed. Friends, true faith grows by testing. The good craftsman tests his work to make sure that it will do what he intends it to do and take whatever strains it may experience in the future. And so Jesus stops to speak to this woman uh, to, to grow and strengthen not only her faith, but Jairus's. After all, what did Jairus really think about Jesus? Was he just another teacher like his friends thought? Was he just a flash in the pan, a bright, shiny object just for this immediate season? Nothing more? Or was Jesus different? Was Jesus otherworldly? And so Jesus says, he's trying to encourage Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. Jairus, I'm different. I'm more than you realize. I'm God's son. I'm the king of the universe. So here we see the essence of faith, to believe in the power of Jesus, even when you don't know the will of Jesus. And so they rush off you know, to Jairus' home, and, and, and people are weeping at the house, the grief is palpable. Mark, the narrator, doesn't really say much about Jairus, which is probably a good sign. Jesus says, hey, why are you guys weeping? She's only sleeping. You know, in other words, this is a temporary thing. But then notice verse 40, the crowds. What do they do? The, the people around in this town, they ridicule Jesus. They laugh at him. They mock him. They had no category for Jesus or his power of his ways. They thought they knew better. And then notice what Jesus does. This is really interesting to me. He puts the people of unbelief on the outside, the crowns. He puts the people of faith on the inside. So Peter, James, John, Jairus, his wife, Jesus, once again, he's done this before. He makes the divide clear between insiders, who's truly on the inside in his kingdom, and outsiders, those who are on the outside of God's kingdom. In other words, those who believe in him and trust him, and those who reject Jesus. The hospitable soils are all inside. The inhospitable soils are all outside. And so we see here Jairus is siding with Jesus. He has faith, and his faith has triumphed. He's trusting Jesus. He trusts in what Jesus has said even before seeing what Jesus will do. And that, again, is the essence of faith, isn't it? 
believing in the person, the power, the promises of Jesus, even when you haven't seen things fully play out. That's faith. And that kind of faith muscle in Jairus had been built up just a few minutes ago with with the woman in Jesus. Now he's facing the greatest challenge of his life, perhaps, and he's finding that his spiritual muscles are strong. He's ready to face it. Friends, this is often how God works with us. I want to read to you a quote by Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, This is from her book, Secure in the Everlasting Arms. And those of you that know Elizabeth Elliot's story, uh, her husband, Jim Elliot, was killed by the Aqua Indians, a tribe in Ecuador, um, speared by some Indians there uh, when he was in his early 30s. So they were in their early part of marriage, and he was killed. She ended up remarrying, and her second husband died uh, of cancer. Uh, She's married a third time. She ended up going back to uh, that village and doing some wonderful ministry But here's a woman that has certainly encountered worsening circumstances. Listen to her words. God makes us wait. He keeps us on purpose in the dark. He makes us walk when we want to run. Sit still when we want to walk. For he has things to do in our souls that we are not interested in just yet. We cannot fully know the strange providences of God in our lives. He moves us to and fro. He gives and he takes away. He brings us into something we thought would be a wonderful season of blessing, only for us to find out it's actually going to be a season of pain. And sometimes things do get worse and not better. But friends, what if all along the way, as we wait, he is making us do some spiritual deadlifting, something I've never done before, so I can't quite relate, but you see what I'm saying. What if if Jesus is designed for this season, perhaps you're in the season right now, the season of waiting and pain to develop, uh, uh, the, the purpose is to develop your spiritual faith muscles. And what if Jesus slows us down, he makes us wait, so we can witness what he's doing with other people. Isn't that what's happening here? I mean, Jairus is standing there, and, and he's got his daughters on, the, on death's door, and he's seeing God work in someone else's life. What if that's why he's gathered us up in the 21st century in local churches? We're never meant to grow our faith muscles in isolation. We're meant to see the faith of others see the work of God in others, and then our muscles, our faith muscles grow as well. This is why just showing up to church or your community group is so crucial because as we wait on the Lord, he builds our faith, right? He builds our faith when we see our dying brother sing passionately in church. He builds our faith when we see our hurting sister pray to God for months and recover miraculously, quickly. He builds our faith when we see our jobless brother generously serve others instead of wallowing in depression. This is what Jesus is doing with Jairus. So what happens next? Well, look at verses 40 and following. Excuse me, 41 and following. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. And this 
uh, at this, they were utterly astonished. It's interesting, she, this girl, is 12 years old. Jesus' daughter had a flow of blood for as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. Maybe that's like a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, maybe Jesus, who is, I don't know, the orchestrator of the universe, the, 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 the king of the world, right? Maybe, maybe he has set things up in this way so that Jairus would be reminded, hey, have compassion on the outsider. Hey, what I did for that daughter, I can do for your daughter. But as we're seeing these two kind of spectacular uh, miracles, we have to admit it's not the same. It's not like these two miracles are equal. There is an escalation that is taking place here. In the opening chapters of Mark, we have seen Jesus teach with authority, touch lepers, exercise demons, still storms, heal women with bleeds. But here we see an escalation in his supernatural activity. That escalation should alert us that this moment is different. He doesn't just heal. He raises someone from the dead. This is the first resurrection from the dead recorded in human history. If we thought that commanding demons and healing lepers was something else, how about raising a human from the dead? And notice how he does that. He takes the child by the hands. He touched a dead body which would make Jesus ritually unclean. He shared in her death in order to deliver her from it and give her life. Later, he would climb a hill called Calvary and share again in death. This time it is our death. He would become unclean for our sake. He would bear God's judgment against our sin. What he did here for this girl as he touches her dead body is just a little preview of what he would do on the cross. But we also get a glimpse of something else. We get a glimpse of resurrection, don't we? We get a glimpse of a little preview here of Jesus' own resurrection, but also our future resurrection. At the end of time, Jesus will take our hand and he's going to say, arise. And you know two other people that he's going to grab the hand of? It's going to be this woman, this little girl. Even though they were once healed, even though they were raised from the dead, they're, they're both going to die right? Again. And so there's a greater need for an eternal resurrection. In this life, we have physical problems. We have to face cancer and kidney stones and strokes. Sometimes God intervenes. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes things get better. Sometimes they get worse, even much worse. But the promise that we cling to, that God has given us, that fortifies our faith today is the promise that Jesus will hold our hand and raise us up on the last day. He is strong enough to raise your dead body from the grave, just as he was strong enough to raise this little girl from the grave. And listen, God hasn't promised to heal you in this lifetime. He hasn't promised to save you from every painful circumstances in this lifetime. But he will save you in the end. And so as we come to a close, I want to briefly draw your attention to one more part of the story, one more detail. Yes, Jesus is the one who has the power to heal or bleed and raise this girl from the dead. We have to feel the weight of that. That ought to strengthen our faith. But look one more time at this text. There's something else here in verse 23. Notice the father describes this child as my little daughter. You see that? This is a term of endearment. It's like when we call our daughters baby girl or sweet girl. 
I want you to see that it's the same language, the same word that Jesus uses later when he speaks to her in verse 41. He calls this girl, baby girl, sweet girl, little girl. How astonishing. That the God of the universe, the one who heals lifelong bleeds and raises girls from the dead, that he would also bend so low, stoop to speak to a child in this way. Friends, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the one who holds the stars in his hands and he knows the number of hairs on your head. This is the one who has designed every molecule and paints every beautiful night sky. He took this girl's hand and he calls her baby girl. This is characteristic of his ministry with children. He never shooed them away. He welcomed them. He prayed for them. He blessed them. Absolutely astonishing. So this morning, I want you to see not only the fierce power of Jesus on display here, but his delicate touch. I want you to see his tenderness. He is more powerful than we could ever imagine, but he's not clumsy with his power. He wields the power of a five-star general with the precision and care of a skillful surgeon. He holds his power much like a shepherd with his unreliable and dumb sheep. I want you to listen to this. This is Isaiah chapter 40, and it's just a single verse. And uh, just picture God as a shepherd in this way. God protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are young. What a picture. What a picture of the strength of God as well as the tenderness of God. And you know, I think we, and that's non-Christians, Christians, all of humanity, we want to be touched by the transcendent, you know, Christians and non-Christians alike. And, and that's why you see people in the Westminster Abbey sitting on a pew and lingering there for hours because they're taking in the beautiful aesthetics and architecture that is just kind of helps them to kind of consider the transcendence, you know. And that's why people linger over sunsets and hike the Grand Tetons and set aside weeks to do this kind of stuff. Well, the good news of the story, what we see in the story is that in Jesus, what we long for is fulfilled. In Jesus, who is our good shepherd, we can be touched by the transcendent. Strength and tenderness come together. He's in the boat, right? And so are we. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. Only belief. Don't waste your waiting Look around, see what God's doing, perhaps in the lives of others. Don't pretend to be strong and self-sufficient. You are not, neither am I. Run to the one who is stronger and more tender than you can ever imagine. Rely on him, rest in him, and trust him. Trust him, even when things get worse. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize in this story and in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' incredible strength. We see his power. We recognize the divine son is at work as he's walking in Palestine. And yet we are astounded to see that he slows down for a woman that is on the outside, on the fringes of society, 
We're astounded to see Jesus take some time to grab the hand and speak kindly to a little girl. Oh, Father, we are encouraged by this because we want to be treated like that too. And we can be confident that you wield power, and yet you are not clumsy with it when you meet us. And so we are grateful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a moment now to ponder the passage silently.